Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. I'm now going to get like accusations of being sexist because I just called you both babes, but you guys are you know, self-described biohacker babes. I've got Lauren and Renee here, which I'm super excited about. I've been on your podcast, Biohacker Babe Podcast, twice now, and now it's finally time. We've come to you guys being on Hanu. So welcome, both of you. How about we first start off, because there are going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast. Uh, Renee and Lauren, how about each of you, like maybe just talk for like a few seconds, say, hi, I'm Renee, hi, I'm Lauren, so people can hear your voice, and then we'll have kind of like that link there. Yeah, uh, this is Renee. Hello, thanks for having us. Yeah, you get bonus points if you can tell the difference between our voices today. Oh man, D- me? I mean, I get to, I get to. You talking about the listener or me? Because for me, I get to just watch your mouth. The move. listener. <laughs> the listener. There you go. And then, and then, how about you, Lauren? Why don't you share your voice? This is Lauren. I'm calling in from Maryland today. I'm across the country. Renee is in Vegas. We are two years apart, but yeah, our voices do sound pretty similar. So this will be fun. I actually, I guess I'm always like looking at your faces and I've, I've seen you guys enough, interacted with you enough that like, I know like your voice when I hear it. Uh, but now that you mentioned that you have similar sounding voices, like that's all I hear now is similar sounding voices. So way to go in differentiating yourselves. We've ruined it for you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. And Our parents still mess it up. So good luck. That's funny. Oh, yeah. makes sense. You know, it's, it, it's kind of like the idea. Like I know if I had twins, I know you guys aren't twins, but if I had twins, like I, I'm pretty good at like being aware and mindful, but I feel like I'd mess it up all the time. It's like my two boys, I call them this, you know, each other's name all the time. So yeah, good luck with this one. Luckily, we're not sensitive. And you called us guys and it's totally fine. We don't care. Gals, guys. Gals, guys, babes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, it's so funny because like for me, I try to be like conscientious not to step on toes and to like utilize the language that I feel like is most PC. But I just I talk informally a lot. And then so the natural thing for me is like, guys, babes is not a natural thing for me to say just so that we're like, you know, yeah. everybody knows that. Um, so, OK, one of my hot take questions for you both is you're two years apart, but this is a question that I don't know the answer to that I feel like I should know the answer to. So who's the oldest sibling and who's the youngest? I'm the oldest. Lauren is the oldest by two years. 
And that's Lauren, by the way, if people are listening to the podcast. So that's funny because I I wasn't sure. And I was talking to uh, my marketing manager, Molly, uh, and she listens to you guys all the time. And she'll hear this podcast uh, and, and she'll probably get on me for mentioning that. But she loves you guys. So Molly, uh, I've, I've, I've outed you. Uh, but uh, I asked her that question. I was like, who do you think it is? And uh, we both, and uh, please don't take offense to this, we both thought, oh, I think it's Lauren. Uh, um, so we were right. We hear different things all the time. People think we're twins. Sometimes people think Renee is older. I don't know. We're we're close enough. And we have a lot of similarities, but we do have a lot of differences as well. I could see you guys passing as twins. Absolutely sisters. Like un, no, undoubtedly. But I could I could see the twins. Uh, but I, I don't know. I've seen you enough and talked to you enough that I know the difference. Uh, so uh, yeah. yeah. But anybody else who might not be as acquainted, they 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 may have mass confusion on this one. So I'm glad we were able to settle it uh, here on the Hanu Health Podcast. Yeah. Now it can proceed. So I want to jump into this one um, because one of the things that I think is always interesting um, is just kind of like unpacking a little bit about like how you guys like and gals and see there you go again. I'm going to be thinking about that this whole time. How you both got <laughs> interested. Uh, I know how you babes um, got interested in in health and wellness because we all have kind of our own stories. I, I was just curious. I was like, is this one thing where like one of you was like got interested, you know, really quickly first, and the other one followed? You know, I don't know if it's big sister or older sister, younger sister type thing, or was it kind of just like the family dynamics? Give us a little bit of the background on what brought you into health, wellness, optimization, peak performance. Certainly family dynamic. Our dad has been biohacking since we were kids, early 90s. He had all kinds of weird toys and contraptions in the house. So we were exposed to that at a young age. We didn't know what it was at the time, but we were subconsciously like super exposed. You know, so we learned very early on to be curious. We didn't know what the term biohacking was, of course, at that point. But we knew that there were, you know, models outside of the traditional medicine or health route. Some light exposure. And then we both went away to college. We went our separate ways. And we kind of came back into health for different reasons. Like I went to school for dance, became a personal trainer, and then went into more of a holistic health model. Renee, she can tell her story, went to school for business <laughs> and then with her own health struggles came back around to nutrition. So I, I don't know how much we influenced each other. I think it was just like deeply in our genetics. And at some point we were going to come back around into the same realm, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I went to Florida to study business. Lauren went to New York City to study dance. So we were like pretty far apart. I mean, we always stayed in touch as sisters, but it was almost like the same timeline that like she started studying fitness. I was studying nutrition. And then at some point we were like, we love what we're all doing. We should do something together. Why don't we do a podcast since we live on opposite sides of the country now that I'm in Vegas. Three years now we've been doing the podcast. But yeah, it was kind of funny timing how it worked out. No, it certainly is. Is there a little bit of like left brain, right brain going on here between you guys? Because Renee, like when I think about like going to school for business and the analytical side, maybe even potentially a little bit more left brainish. And then it's like Lauren going off to, you know, do Broadway and to be in the arts more, maybe potentially abstract, a little bit more right brainish. I almost like you're kind of painting the the picture here for me that like, this is why this works so well. 100%. Yeah. Like I do for the <laughs> podcast, like I'm all, I do all the scheduling, all like the spreadsheets. And then Lauren does like all the social media graphics and posts. Like 
So it is like a really good partnership. I couldn't do it without her for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have so many friends that have podcasts and they do it alone. We're like, oh, man, just so grateful for a buddy in this. And we just come by it naturally. She, I think, happens to enjoy more of that. I would never want to do the more – I'm not as organized as Renee is. I'm just super grateful for her. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. I mean, you work off your passion. You work off your skill set. Like that's like the perfect combination. It's like for me – it's like, you know, I don't do any of the scheduling stuff. I don't do any of more like the analytical stuff. And it's like, because I like doing that in certain areas, but podcasting for me is a lot more flowy. It's a lot more arty. I don't like to be as analytical. Like in times I can be, but like, especially when I'm hosting, I try to take a little bit more of like my analytical hat off and just like go with the flow. And I think it just depends on style uh, because like in other scenarios, it might be because like I'm countering like what I am in other scenarios, which is very like analytical. So it's good that we can kind of come do something where we can express ourselves and maybe like a little bit of a different way and try it on and take off and on different hats. But that's pretty cool. I love kind of the the balancing act that you guys have there. That's awesome. I mean, I have been familiar with your work now for years. You know, I got into the health and wellness I guess scene and even though the you know and even in the so-called biohacking scene you know back in 2016 ish uh, was about the time that I entered into this and started you know linking up with a lot of the health and wellness influencers and kind of sharing my passion for biometrics and psychophysiology and of course you guys were some of the first names that I came across and so I've been you know so incredibly grateful to be introduced to you and to develop a friendship and to be on your podcast and so uh, you know you I've learned a lot from you both. And I think one of the things that I really learned so much from is just kind of the diversity and the way we approach health and wellness. And when I say diversity, I'm really talking about opening it up and broadening my horizon to like what can be within, like what is is kind of more within the domain of health and wellness that might be even out there on the edge. So something that's not just kind of compartmentalized in this conventional health model that is passed around so freely. And so one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, I thought it'd be a great, like really first to- good topic to dive into is this field of so-called biohacking. And I know you guys have it in your title. We've you know mentioned that word multiple times. And so I'm going to pull a uh, play out of the playbook of Lex Friedman. And I'm going to ask you a very simple, straightforward question, which is, what is biohacking? And the <laughs> other question is to that is, is that a topic and a word that you guys are still comfortable using? Or do you feel like it's morphed or is morphing into something that is making it less comfortable? It's certainly morphing. But I feel comfortable. I think we feel comfortable still using that word because I think we can have our own interpretation about it. Mm -hmm. What ends up in the dictionary is not what's going to evolve over time. And for us, I think the core of biohacking is just this curiosity to optimize. And that's such a personalized journey. It's a personalized puzzle and roadmap. And so at the core, just being curious about your own optimization and ways that you can do that, 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 that doesn't really change over time. What's in that category of biohacking, whether it's certain devices, wearables that we're using, supplements, sure, that's going to change. But like the curiosity, and that's what we learned at a very young age from our dad, is just to ask like why and not take one answer as black and white end of story. It's like, 
What's the context? Can we can we color this in? Can we broaden our horizons? Can we step back and take a, a wider perspective and see what else is going on here? So I, I feel comfortable using that word biohacking because it's such a broad like perspective about how we approach our health. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I think anytime I hear someone say something negative about the word biohacking, like, oh, does that mean you're implanting magnets under your skin and gene editing? I use that as an opportunity to educate them of all the other things that we're doing. And I know some people in the space, they're like, oh, I'm not a biohacker because they don't want to be put into that category. No, I'm proud to be a biohacker. I think everyone in the world should be a biohacker. Like Lauren said, that curiosity, we all need that. The personalization, you know, I think we're past the point of like everyone needs to be on keto or paleo or vegan. I think people are waking up to the fact that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I and even I mean with our own health journeys we discovered that there's not even one answer for each health solu- or health problem. Like you have to be putting the puzzle pieces together for yourself or you're not going to be able to optimize your health. I think the biggest thing that has happened within this field of health optimization, peak performance and then yeah, let's go ahead and use that word biohacking. In my opinion and again this is just purely my I think sometimes the word gets a little bit bastardized because it becomes used like so often in like every single single scenario. And so one of the problems that I see, because I don't have a problem with the word biohacking. Um, and I think we should throw some operational definitions, maybe even around that. I like, I think we've kind of talked about, you know, it's the idea of like curiosity and maybe an in of one, and it's a open-minded to experimentation around health that might even be considered by some either fringy, but then in another extent, it doesn't have to be fringy things that we're doing or even the utilization of technology. So we'll unpack that in a second, but I almost wonder too, if it gets bastardized, that word, because it starts to become associated with certain people or certain groups or certain dogmatic statements, kind of to your point, Renee, of like, you know, it's there, there's kind of like, it's like my way or the highway, or it's like we either do this or we don't do this. This is effective or it's not. I think that's where the lines get drawn or maybe the the waters get a little bit more muddied there. So maybe we can unpack this idea and maybe put an operational definition to biohacking in and of itself. Because I know that there's definitions thrown out there. There is, yeah, Lauren, like you said, the definition that's in the dictionary. But like, what is your kind of like interpretation of like what that word really like means. And maybe it means something different for both of you. Yeah. And I think it's always changing, but I think to keep it really simple, anything that you do that's impacting your biology, right? And I think really everyone in the world has been a biohacker at some point. I think if you changed your diet for a week to see how you feel differently, that's biohacking. You made a different, Mm -hmm. you had a different input to your body and you're seeing how you feel. Or You went outside to lay in the sunshine to increase your vitamin D levels. That was an input. You're seeing how you feel differently. You're looking at lab work, seeing how it changes. Like I think all of that is biohacking. So really, there's probably no one on the planet that hasn't done something like that. And I would just layer in the N of one experimentation part. Like we do have to be citizen scientists and listen to that feedback because we can all just stand in front of a red light. We can all do a cold plunge. But are you then turning the mirror on yourself and saying, how is this affecting my body? How do I feel? Can I use quantification from a a wearable or, you know, just looking at symptoms, mood, motivation, sleep and say, did this work? 
Can I change the variables a little bit to make it work a little bit better? Do I need to dial it back? Like what's happening with my personal stress bucket, my stress load, toxic load? It's so intensely personal. So, you know, we could just go to a biohacking center and sign up for all the devices in one day and just like slam our body with hormesis. But like, how is this actually affecting our body on a monthly schedule and a yearly schedule, like long term for health and longevity? It's so personal. And so the big piece of truly biohacking, in my opinion, is the listening and being able to then integrate Mm -hmm. that into your own tuition. So you really have like lifelong lessons and your own perspective for change. I like the listening component, the self-awareness component. You know, I think that uh, sometimes the word biohacking or biohackers, you get kind of all lumped into one category. And I think that that's problematic. I mean, it comes back to kind of the dogmatic views that can be held. Uh, But I think that when it comes down to it, it's not about, you know, just buying and trying every piece of technology. But, you know, I always come back to it's first biohacking to me is that at first it's all about setting a foundation of basics. It's these, you know, again, basics before biohacks, but then adding on a level of different things to help optimize. Um, And that is where I see kind of the, the key difference there. You kind of mentioned, Lauren, this idea of like, if we wanted to, like we could go to, I mean, I've got a clinic right down here that I could go to and just every day, like I could go do an IV drip and an infrared sauna and cryotherapy and do whatever, a coffee enema, like all of these things. I could do this every day. But I almost wonder, is there like an overload of things that we're doing in the open, you know, the so-called biohacking movement? Like, are there pitfalls? So I'm curious for you guys, if you think there's pitfalls to biohacking. Definitely pitfalls. I mean, I think as humans, we're wired to find the easy answer. We're wired as much as we say we're not looking for a magic pill, like we're all looking for an easy way out. And so if something Mm -hmm. is presented as a way to easily optimize your body, of course, we're going to say like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But without that feedback and without the listening and, and checking in with your personal physiology, You know, I see like cold plunging is becoming super popular. Should we be cold plunging every single day? I don't know. How does your body respond? Like what else is going on hormonally, metabolically? Are you sleeping well? Like the answer is I don't know. And I think that's I get questions from clients all the time. Is this food good for me? Is this exercise good for me? I'm like, I don't know. Like, let's look at your data. Let's look at your You don't have all the answers. Yeah, no, (laughs) I'll be the first to say I don't have the answers, but I'll sit here with you and let's lay it all out and see. Like your body is going to give us the answer. So it's an exploration and it's the puzzle is always changing. Always. I will will just add that that collecting the data is huge. And obviously the three of us are obsessed with heart rate variability, but I just think that that, (laughs) I mean, I don't know what I would do without that now. I mean, I wish I had it 10, 20 years ago, but again, yeah, that cold plunge yesterday what does your HRV look like today or that sauna or that intense workout? Um, I don't think we should be doing all of these stacks of hormesis all day, every day. And I think HRV is huge game changer for that. I mean, you're speaking my language now, so uh, don't derail me too much here. You know, the thing about about it though is to your point, and I think we've talked about this before on other podcasts, but it bears repeating and it probably bears over repeating is this idea of people hearing of, you know, whatever someone else is doing and thinking, well, that's it. Like, that's the thing that I need to be doing. So I heard Ben Greenfield has been doing HIT every single day. So now I need to do high intensity interval training every day. And you've got, you know, 125 pound, you know, 
30-year-old female doing it. And next thing they know, they're like, my hormones are wrecked. My cortisol's off the roof. And, you're, and Ben Greenfield's like, but I'm thriving doing this type of stuff. And it's like, this again speaks to the mechanism and need for measuring and also checking in on our bio-individual response to these things and not just taking whatever biohacker or health influencers protocol and saying, now I'm making it mine. You might could do that as a mechanism of testing it out, but if you're not testing it out and then you just continue to do it, you could be doing yourself a lot more harm than you are good. And so I think that that is one of the greatest things that the self-quantification movement, the biohacking movement has really added to the field of health and wellness is that it has provided us a great framework for testing and retesting and being this in of one and self-quantifying. So I, you know, I, I, I couldn't gr- agree more on that one. So I, I want to now kind of switch a little bit of gears because a lot of people love hearing about what people are doing because there is a lot of merit to that. And the reason that there's merit is because individuals like both of you spend a lot of time fully immersed both in the trenches of doing things and living it out, but also studying this, these things, talking to experts and professionals in this field. So a lot of people want to know, like, what is Lauren and Renee doing for their health and wellness? So I wanted to take some time just to talk about kind of the what and the why that you guys are doing, like in regards to your health and wellness in some different, let's say, health categories. And so the things I want to talk about are things like nutrition, movement and exercise, sleep, stress, and then maybe too, we can throw in like, what are some of those like uses of tech and biohacking that you're throwing into your daily routine? So let's start with one that tends to be like a fan favorite for everybody because it's something that everybody must do. The other ones, we would, all three of us would argue are must do's, but maybe they're not things that everybody's doing. But the one thing that you must do is eat. Unless you're a breatharian and you're living off air for some reason, um, you are an anomaly. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about nutrition first. So I'm curious what your nutrition protocols look like, and maybe that changes so you can talk about how it changes. And then one other component that I really want to focus on here, because I get a lot of questions about it, is the role of fasting, especially for premenopausal, perimenopausal women. Take it there. Let's talk a little bit about nutrition and fasting. Well, we're both really into the cycle syncing, and I think this works really well to match the rise and fall of estrogen and then progesterone, second half of the cycle, but also just to have diet variability because having stimulus for our bodies to continually adapt. The body's pretty weird. It likes consistency, but it also likes change. So trying to find that perfect ratio of how consistent can we be for a circadian rhythm to expect certain things like sunshine in the morning, food in the morning, but then how do we change it up so the body doesn't go to sleep and check out? So we both lean into the cycle thinking. We both eat meat. I eat a good amount of meat that feels really good for me. Mm-hmm. I was vegetarian for seven years. I crashed and burned. Nothing against the vegetarian <sighs> diet, though I think we have enough data to show that maybe <laughs> we should explore <laughs> that for most people, see what's happening. So I lean into the carnivore diet, but I know at the beginning of my cycle, I will then eliminate some animal protein, kind of take a little rest from that, go a little bit more keto because I know that my hormones, when they're low, there's no estrogen, progesterone, my body can tolerate that. But I'm always doing like a check-in. I'm always like reassessing every month because there's so many variables. Like you talk about with HRV, Dr. J, like so many variables to tease out here. And so it's constantly like listening to the body, like what's happening? What's different this month? Let me keep asking questions to see, is this still working? Because 
we, there's fluctuations on a monthly cycle, yearly, and then different periods of our life. You know, once I get to menopause, it's going to be a whole different situation. So there's not right. one program protocol that's going to work for me for the rest of my life. But right now, really leaning into the cycle syncing and then checking back in, like, does this feel good? Do I need to make small little edits? But the diet is clean meat, grass fed pasture-raised meat, lots of vegetables. Uh, Renee and I just did Viome recently, which, you know, the Mm -hmm. PCR stool testing, we don't know how accurate that is. But what I really liked about it is the food list, leaning into superfoods, maybe cutting out some avoid foods. And that was just like a good lesson for me. I was like, oh, all of my avoid foods are the vegetables that I eat all the time. Maybe Mm -hmm. this is a good motivation to just cycle off of those, try some different nutrients for six weeks, and then I can go back to those. So- the variability and like constantly changing the inputs, I think is really important. And then just checking in with yourself. No, yeah. that's really interesting. No, thanks. For, thanks for sharing that. How about you, Renee? Is yours very similar to that? Or do you differ at all from Lauren for any various reason? Yeah, I think we're, we're pretty similar. Um, I mean, we've compared, you know, our genetic testing, our CGM data. I think genetically, I do well with more of like a Mediterranean style diet. And so I learn not only the cycle syncing, like I definitely do more like keto beginning of the cycle and, you know, phase in and out of my carbs, but breakfast, I have to do protein and fat. And then dinner, I definitely need a little bit more carbs. So a little bit of that carb refeed at night on my CGM, it like looks beautiful when I do that. And I think that that's pretty common to see that. Um, Viome was also very similar. It was like the vegetables that I eat every other day were all on the avoid list. So clearly overeating those. Um, I don't do well with cruciferous vegetables, which is pretty common on Viome, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think we're, we're, we're pretty similar. But even on the CGM, I remember one day we were at our grandmother's cottage and we both had a couple pieces of pineapple. And my CGM was like, whoo, like skyrocketed. And yours just went up like a little bit, I think. Yeah, it was so like it's a kind of fun to see. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but it's so do you think that changing. speaks mostly to the genetic component? Uh, that's why there was that difference in change or there was something else going on there? I don't Maybe, know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the gut microbiome plays a big role because we also did this test called day two. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a, mm-hmm. actually a stool analysis that I, I'm is not. looking at. Um, it's looking at your gut microbiome to predict how you would respond with your blood sugar. So it like you can look oh, up a food like yeah. um, eggs. Okay, you'll get like maybe a two out of ten or pineapple a five out of ten. So it's estimating right. based off your gut microbiome, which is pretty cool because it was pretty similar yeah. to the actual CGM data, mm-hmm. and we both saw that. So I'm thinking that although we're genetically very similar, our gut microbiome is different. Very different. Why? Yeah, I, I was yeah. a C-section baby. I had a good amount of antibiotics as a kid. You know, we sure. at 18 we both went different ways. You know, there's so many yeah. reasons why that could be different. Um, but also, yeah. like Lauren said, really listening to your body. I've gotten to the point where I can feel when I need a steak or a sweet potato. I can just feel yeah. it in my body. And I remember it was yeah. funny. I was at like a biohacker event one time in California, and we all rented a house together. And most of the house was like keto carnivore. And so we're all cooking dinner together. And it's a keto carnivore dinner. And I'm at like day 28 of my cycle. And I'm like- Bacon and beef and chicken and fish. Yeah. And <laughs> liver, like, can I just get a brain, sweet potato, heart. please? I went to Whole Foods just to buy a sweet potato for myself because I was like, I need some carbs at this point in my cycle. That's hilarious. Yes. So you're not demonizing carbs. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, no, it's, 
They aren't bad. No, you know, a lot of, for me, for me, I, I tend to metabolize carbs pretty well, but I always say like when I do intake a fair amount of carbs, like I earn them. Um, but you know, I do a fair amount of endurance training, a lot of strength training. Um, so when I, when I earn those carbs, especially in the evening, like I, I feel okay and never feel guilty about them. And if I see like a little bit of a fluctuation in my CGM, I also know that's natural fluctuations that you see. And it's not that, you know, having kind of these increases in, and we can talk about this too, because I think it's really important. It's not just having those increases um, and and you know a, a fall back to normal glucose is a bad thing. And I think it starts to get demonized for people like, like you need to keep flatline all the time. And it's like, no, that's mm-hmm. not how this works. Just like just like you don't need to keep HRV up all the time. There's actually some bad to that. So it's it's yeah. th- th- like many things in life, we come back to this whole role and idea of balance. So um, is is the CGM something you guys wear um, all the time, or do you guys like kind of cir- uh, kind of circulate it in and out of your routine? That's what I do. But I still cycle. But that's predominantly what I'm doing with my clients is blood sugar coaching. Um, I started the beta program with levels. So all of my clients come to me to look at their CGM data. And that's the number one thing. They're like, oh my God, I'm spiking. I'm like, how high are you spiking? It's like 120. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I hear that. So it's like resetting this idea and and maybe considering that we don't really know what blood sugar should look like in a healthy population yet. I mean, we can look at the visual data and we can potentially spot underlying stressors if the picture is really sharp, steep, if you're not returning to baseline, if you're going below, like there's a lot of variables as with everything. But I think there's this idea, like you said, that we have to be flat and also this idea that we're not supposed to eat carbs. People are like, I can't eat fruit anymore. I'm like, we probably should be able to eat fruit. So let's figure out why right now that's not working for you and let's get back to it because I I do believe that we should be able to eat fruit. And maybe more in the summer than in the winter, you know, looking at the seasonality of that. Um, you know, I always like think of like our ancestors, were they walking through the pasture and like, oh, I can't eat that berry. I, it's car. It's a carb. <laughs> they were like, hell no, they were gorging it. themselves. I'm sure if they came across a berry patch, I know I would if I, especially if I was like oh, even yeah. remotely hungry and I found some berries, I'm taking that tree down. Like it is uh, game and over. I'm sure it wasn't when it was like snowing and freezing cold that they found the berries, right? Like <laughs> right, the middle of right. summer. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All makes sense. One, more, one last thing I want to talk about nutrition and then we'll move to like movement and exercise is the role of fasting um, and whether or not both of you fast. Do you think it's a good idea for women to fast? And if you do think it's a good idea for women to fast, and maybe that's all dependent on age and other other types of factors or variables. How long maybe is the science saying it, women should fast for a benefit? Because it might be or may not be. I'm going to throw that out there as a softball to you both. A, a, a difference between men and women. Personally, I do really well with a 12 to 14 hour fast overnight every day. I'm pretty consistent yeah. with that. Um, if for some reason I don't hit that 12 hours, I just, I don't feel great. I'm more tired. My digestive system is a little off. And that usually happens if it's like, you know, maybe a really late dinner out with friends or something weird out of out of the norm. Sure. Um, so 12 to 14 hours, I feel great. I don't do fast longer than that. Um, I think maybe some women can do that. And Lauren will talk about that, you know, maybe like a 24-hour fast every other week or once a month. For me, it's too stressful on my body. I know I didn't really share a lot about my health journey, but in my 20s, I was super, super sick. 
uh, HPA axis mm-hmm. dysfunction, mercury toxicity, Epstein-Barr virus. I mean, my adrenals just took like a major hit. I think I'm more sensitive to too much of that hormesis. And for me, that fasting is a little much. So I stick with 12. So Renee, Renee, how does that manifest? Does that manifest in your biometrics or is that just like more of a subjective feel? Like if you fast, like it drains the ever living daylights out of you or maybe a bit of both. Like you can see it manifest in both data and subjective feel. I would say it's more of how I feel. If I hit that 16 hours, I just, I can feel it in my body. So I can't say that I've done like a 24 hour fast and I saw what my HRV did or my CGM did. I never, I've just never pushed it that far. And even I tried to do Prolon, which is the five-day fasting mimicking diet. Yeah, my glucose was like getting down into the 50s and I was just really tired, brain fog. And so I ended up adding like a butter coffee to my lunch every day on Prolon. Don't tell the people at Prolon I did that, but. Well, yeah, they're going to get you. Walter Longo's coming after you. <laughs> Sorry, Walter. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting program he set up, but I- I'm really not a fan of the packaged foods that they've created. I had insane glucose variability when I was on that. The food was spiking me higher than I've ever seen in my glucose, which is kind of scary. And then you're already eating that reduced level of calories like that. Yeah, that seems like it could be a punch straight to the gut. Oh, it really was. Like um, GI distress, my adrenals definitely took a hit as well. Just from the extended fasting, like five days was too much for me. And then for the next two weeks, actually, I could really feel that my adrenals were just not operating. Mm. So I, I don't know, like looking at the research, I don't know that we have a ton of research about females fasting. And I know there's one or two studies that are always cited. There's a lot of articles that cite these one or two studies. And, you know, if you just read the synopsis, it's like, oh, thyroid levels dropped after a 24 hour fast. But if you keep reading, it's like after the refeed, those levels came right back up. But a lot of people mm, will just read the, the blurb and say, this is bad. This is bad. Well, I don't know. Again, it comes back to your personal physiology. What is your stress level? What hits have you taken to your adrenals like Renee has experienced? I think that level of hormesis is always going to be personalized. So I know for me, like I can do up to a 20 hour fast one day a week. And I find that that really helps my glycemic stability and overall metabolic health. So, but I can't do that every day of the month. You know, if I'm in that last week of my cycle where I should be increasing calories and carbohydrates, it's a no, no. And I'll feel terrible if I do it. So I try to find days in my calendar that will work for me and I'll try to push it because I do see increased HRV. I see better Again, glucose stability, but it has to be, you know, on a day when I'm not super stressed. It has to be the right day of my cycle. And, you know, I just think we always have to step back and and look at the individual. I think for some people it would be contraindicated. Some people it can be fabulous. It's a big I don't know. Let's let's look at it. I mean, for scientists to discover that would be so hard, right? I mean, women like, okay, every woman that's on day three of your cycle that has the identical hormones, identical stress levels, identical sleep. Okay, now go. Yeah, we're gonna get yeah, we're gonna get broad strokes um, and suggestions, not these kind of more granular, high fidelity snapshots of what people should do because they're not throwing in all of these other confounding variables because they can't. It's almost impossible. Or if they mm-hmm. could, it would be you know billion dollar research you know project. Which hey, we mm-hmm. could use it. Who wants to start funding the billion dollar fasting research project for women? Let's go. Uh, yeah. I, I'm I, I'm I'm curious about one thing. In your opinion, like does your strategy change at all, or maybe it doesn't, 
um, postmenopause. Um, so, so in comparison to premenopausal, perimenopausal women, do postmenopausal women um, can they potentially approach fasting differently? And the reason I ask this is because I've kind of heard um, from numerous individuals that that can be the case um, that they could potentially stretch out these uh, fat, these fasting sessions to be a little bit longer. But I was just curious on your take and what you've come across there. Yeah, I've seen some great success with clients that are menopausal with a little more fasting, increasing fats, leaning more keto. Of course, we haven't been through menopause, so I can't speak from experience. So I lean on mm-hmm. research from like Dr. Anna Kabeca, Dr. Mindy Pels has great research on this and and books. But I have seen uh, when I encourage clients to at least experiment in that way, we see HRV go up, glucose control comes down, some biomarkers come back into range. So yeah, without personal experience, I have seen a little bit of success there. I find like 16 hours is pretty doable overnight for postmenopausal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing that I was going to ask, um, because I think it's really interesting, especially kind of as it relates to our next topic, which is going to be on exercise and movement. And I'll even throw like strength and endurance in there. Uh, because I think it feels like a lot of times, like a lot of the women that I've coached, they overlook the strength component. And so the one piece that ties into nutrition and strength would be overall modulation, moderation, or even tracking of protein. And so I'm curious for both of you, um, if protein is something that you're considering, especially uh, in your diet as it uh, relates to muscular development and strength. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of women, they overlook the protein consumption and they overlook the importance of strength training. And I think you need both of those for obviously for so many reasons. I mean, the more muscle we have, the better our metabolism works. We sleep better. Our glucose control is better. Energy is better. All these things. Kind of my go-to for protein, I say about, you know, take your body weight times 0.8 just to get an idea if you're a pretty active female. Um, of course, mm-hmm. it varies a little bit per person, types of protein sources if you're vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, et cetera. But also the strength training. I don't know why a lot of women are just afraid to lift heavy. That idea of I'm going to bulk up and look manly. I don't know where that came from. I think there maybe there's a small percentage. Right. It's the myth of accidental muscle, uh, which I heard. I can't remember who, uh, who said that one time, but I heard it. I was like, oh, I'm taking that one forever. The myth of accidental muscle. It's like, I basically, it's like, I've never come across anybody who just accidentally like became this like bulky Hulk. And if they did, I think it was Peter Atia who said that. Um, and it's like, if they did become that bulky Hulk, then it's like, okay, dial it down. <laughs> you're, you're eating a lot of protein and you're doing a lot of strength training. So I, I, I think it is like, there is this conception that for some reason, if you start training, like you're going to be like, you know, you're going to look like those elite CrossFitters or like a bodybuilding like uh, woman. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the, it comes back to that's the myth of accidental muscle. Yeah. Like they're working very hard to get that muscle. I wish yeah. it was that easy. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I lift pretty exactly. heavy and I mean, I'm my arms petite, are... <laughs> <Yeah. Right>. <laughs> but I also <laughs> grew up in the ballet world where it was you weren't allowed to lift weights. I remember our ballet instructor saying three pound weights maximum because you don't want to bulk up. So I didn't even lift more than five pounds until I got to college. Yeah, there's a lot of conditioning around this. And and what I'm seeing from clients, like the two big scares are I shouldn't eat protein because of this plant-based vegan movement. So women are afraid because they think it's unhealthy. And if they say that, it's like, well, let's look at your labs. Let's see what's happening. And also that strength training is not fun. 
So I'm hearing less and less like, oh, I'm going to bulk up. I'm just hearing like, I don't like doing it. You know, group exercise mm. has just exploded in the last few years, dance cardio, like this fun social environment, which is really valuable. But now that we have that, there's not a lot of motivation to not do the fun stuff because, you know, strength training isn't quite as exciting, I guess. <laughs> Some people like sure. I'm more of like a a power bias genetically. Like I do enjoy that. I don't like cardio as much. Like I have to put a little more emphasis on that because I don't naturally like to do it. But I find more people are more inclined to do, I'll just put in quotations, like fun cardio. (laughs) Right. I almost wonder, and this is purely editorial, purely speculative. I almost wonder if that is one of the big differences between males and females, because I feel like a lot of males that I find, like they love doing like strength and resistance training, but then you tell them, all right, time to get on a cycle or time to get on a treadmill or whatever it may be. And they hate the idea of like endurance. And so I I don't know if we have a good answer. Maybe you guys have a good like speculation as to why, but I see that. Do you guys see that as well? Like that men just like for some reason gravitate, maybe it's because of social stereotypes of like men need to be muscular and bulky and women are like, no, we need to be, you know, fit and not as muscular. I don't know. I mean, it could be. Yeah. It's an interesting thought where I'm the opposite. Like I would rather lift weights all day than put me on a treadmill. Like, oh gosh, (laughs) that's just like painful, but you're right. There is something going on with that. I don't really know why. I don't know. That'd be a good social experiment. I'm assuming it's just like the constructs and the conditioning around it. But maybe there's something hormonally. I know telling. Hey, another. We got. We have to get another billion dollars to fund another study. So, it's, <laughs> all right, we got two on the list. <laughs> two, two on the list. So let's unpack a little bit of like kind of the granularity um, around your own exercise regimen. So I'd love to hear kind of about like the frequency, the duration, uh, the the type of exercise that you guys are doing, and then even the why. Um, so feel free. Uh, you know, I don't know how similar. It is between you both, but I'd love to hear kind of what you guys are doing for exercise. I'm definitely a movement snacker. I move pretty often, frequently. I don't do well with like one intense workout. Like I will never be that person that will set my alarm early to go to like a boot camp or like a body pump. Never, ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do better with doing just like light mobility in the morning. Like my my free biohack stack in the morning is getting sunshine, grounding, going for a little walk with my dog. And I just go through like a pretty general body flow mobility just to get my body moving, like unwind from sleeping probably, you know, I'll tight and curled up in my bed overnight. And then I'll do a strength training session probably later in the day, but I like to mix it up. You know, I'll do cardio one day, more endurance. I'll do a hit one day. I'll do heavier strength training. I really like the variability. And a lot of that is just listening to my body and and what it wants that day or looking at the cycle syncing. What should I lean into based on what my hormones are doing? Um, I wouldn't say that I could just encourage that schedule for anyone because I think it takes a lot of deep listening to get there. Like some people really just need structure and to be told what to do. I just know for me, like a a solid, like intense workout, like if I did a 60 minute workout in the morning, I would be dead for the rest of the day. I just operate, my energy operates so much better if I do snacks. Yeah, it's so funny, the differences. I, I That's my gas pedal at the beginning of the day. Like I got to, as Ben Greenfield says, I got to eat the frog in the morning and like go out there and just like bust ass. Because if I don't, like, I don't know, it, it, that's like my Kickstarter. But it's very interesting. This speaks again to just how individual we are. So like, no, that's that's incredible. Renee, you're a little different. You can do more intense 
I don't know if I can do much more. Yes. Well, yeah, I do orange theory, but you will never see me at the 6 a.m. class ever. I can promise you that. (laughs) I'm like the 4 p.m. girl for sure. But so my business partner, Chris, he goes to the 5 a.m. one. His dude's crazy. He's got a 5 a.m. one in San Diego that he goes to. And I'm like, he and his wife both. I'm like, I, like I'm at the gym at six and that's early, but five, like that means you're up at like, you know, four fifteen, four thirty. So yeah, props. Yeah. And it's an intense class. It's not just like strolling yeah. around the block at 5 a.m. So right, yeah, but I, right. I used to do it like four days, four or five days a week, and I definitely burned out. So I've learned to not do that anymore. I, I do eight classes a month, which is not a lot. It's mm-hmm. two, two a week. Sure. But like Lauren said, it's 60 minutes. It's intense. I mean, it's strength training, it's cardio, it's high-intensity interval training, all of that within one hour. Mm-hmm. So I do that twice a week. I get my steps in every day. Like even if I don't even leave my house or my neighborhood, I surpass 10,000 steps. And whether it's mm-hmm. just going Is that the goal the for stairs, you, 10,000? 10,000 is my minimum. Yeah. 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 And, and, yeah. and even if cool. that's just going up and down the stairs and doing laundry or in between clients running around the house or something, I just – I move a lot. Like I'm never sitting. This is probably the longest I'll sit today for the hour and a half. You know what I mean? Like I will be up and about. And then I like to do the X3 bar. That's my other like strength Mm -hmm. training hack. I When we moved to Vegas, I sold all of my weights, my barbell. I sold everything. And when we moved out here, we're like – really want to buy an entire new gym in our in our house. It just takes up a lot of space. So we invested in the X3 bar. And if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's literally just like this metal bar with four resistance bands. But you can do squats, chest press, overhead press, bicep curls, tricep extensions, all the basic push-pull movements. And I, my husband and I have seen amazing results with that. And I only need to do it twice a week. And it's maybe eight minutes it's fast. And that's all I really do. That's pretty good. I've used one of those X3 bars before because I was really curious. And at first I was like, eh, they just kind of look like resistance bands. But then when they dialed the weight up, I was like, oh man, like this is, this could be really difficult. I mean, this is like a lot of weight. It's not just these simple resistance bands. It's like resistance bands on steroids. <laughs> so uh, I, I could see it being a really good workout. I've seen like you guys post some stuff, I believe on social media where you guys are working out on an ARX machine, ARX. Um, do you guys own one or do, do you guys know somebody who owns one? I've seen you guys using it before, we I believe. We do know someone. It's our, our dad. dad. <laughs> nice. The biohacking dad. Leave it up to him to have the ARX machine. That's awesome. Do you mind telling people a little bit about it? Is it a biohacking lab? He has all the toys. So I'm actually in my parents' house now. And so I get to play with all the things, which just makes my life easier because biohacking fitness devices really lean into that minimum effective dose. You could just, I could run between client sessions for five minutes and do something. But so the ARX is variable resistance. It's an AI technology that matches your potential. So it's only going to push you as far as it like feels that you can push safely and the guys from ARX will always say, like, you can put a, a grandmother and like a football linebacker on the same machine and do the same exercise, and they're both going to get their potential of work. Wow. The big thing with the ARX is that you're optimizing your eccentric phase of the movement because in the gym, if you're lifting a weight, we're usually only lifting as much as we can concentrically, and we're much mm-hmm. stronger eccentrically. So with this machine, yep. you're changing the resistance depending on which way you're pushing, pulling. 
So you're getting your full potential of strength and you can work out for three minutes and you'll be sore for, and they actually do recommend only doing it one time a week, because if you try to do it in less than that, you'll see your metrics are not as good if you're not fully recovered. Interesting. I I really need to get on one of these. I've seen them at like conferences and stuff, but never got on one. Um, And it always looks interesting. And, you know, so for me, like, even though I'm a health optimizer, peak performer, I'm always like, I'm a scientist at heart. So I have to be skeptical. So I see those things and I'm like, I'm skeptical. But then I hear everybody's like, nah, dude, Jay, like you're going to get ripped up by this thing. Like it it is not easy and it's going to be a short period of time. And you're going to feel like you've been in the gym for like three straight hours lifting weights. And I'm always kind of like, eh, we'll have to see about that. I'll be the judge of that. So honestly, I just need to try one out so that I can quit being such a hater. Yeah. So the ARX guys, they pretty much only do ARX, which I could never get behind. And it's similar to the X3 bar, like Dr. Jayquish yeah. that created it yeah. only does the X3 bar. My right. body just loves diversity. So I'll never do one sure. thing, but you are getting cardio and strength at the same time on ARX. Like you do a leg press and you'll step out of that machine winded. It is so crazy. No, interesting. I'm I'm definitely going to give it a go. Yeah, definitely going to give it a go. Now, are you guys incorporating other types of form of of movement? So let's say yoga or Pilates or any other types of things like to your diverse movements? Or do you kind of have like a set schedule of things that you do and stick to that? I do yoga just on my own. Oddly enough, I don't like going to yoga classes. I just like to do it in my living room where my cats are jumping on me, unfortunately. But um, (laughs) that's my form of kind of stretching and mobility. I mean, as a ballet dancer for 25 years, it just feels good to move my body in that way. Um, I do not like Pilates. Everyone's like, oh, you're a ballet dancer. You would love Pilates. I'm like, I hate it. <laughs> Don't judge me. I just like, can't <laughs> get into it. Yeah, that's funny. My, um, yeah, no, I was just gonna say my wife hates Pilates too. So it's uh, <laughs> she she likes it in one in one sense, but then she hates the reformer. Is that what it's called? I think it was like the reformer. She hates that thing in another sense. So yeah, yeah. But you were saying you do some other movement, Lauren? Yeah, I do a lot of mobility and I'm the same. I don't like going to yoga class. I actually don't like going to classes in general because I find probably not going to be what my body needs on this day at this time. I'm so dialed into the personalization that it's hard for me to go to a structured class that is supposed to be good for all people. (laughs) So I I like doing, I do my own yoga. You know, my dog does downward dog every time he gets off the bed and that encourages me to do it myself. Um, But I'm an animal flow instructor, which is pretty intense mobility, stability. And I love animals on Instagram. And I was wondering what that was. Yeah, it's a particular technique that the idea is that before we became bipedal, we were on all fours, like animals are quadrupeds. And so their shoulder stability and strength is much greater because they're on all fours crawling. Mm. And so this movement really gets you down onto the floor, but it's opening up ranges of motion all through your body, but also just building that shoulder strength is like, how vulnerable are our shoulders as humans? Like we're always injuring our shoulders or necks. So Um, And I like the flow aspect. As a dancer, I like to flow through things, which is why I don't like the X3 bar. It just feels so restricted to me. I want like full, I need to like be fully expressed. So it just feels really good on my body. Yeah, yeah. But Lauren has always been moving. I mean, I'm, our parents will tell stories of when she was two years old out at a restaurant, she'd be like climbing on the railings and swinging under the things. Like she has always been moving. I've never seen her stand still for more than two seconds. Oh, I'm standing and I've been like stepping side to side this whole podcast. (laughs) It's great. I mean, there's so many great studies 
Yeah, it's natural. I mean, there's great studies about like the caloric burning benefits of fidgeting. And I fidget all the time. Kind of like you when you said, Renee, that this is the most you'll sit all day. Like this is the most that I will sit all day as well. I can already feel it. Like you keep probably can't tell. I don't know if my camera's showing it, but I've got like my leg propped up over here. Like I'll get into like a a, a, a cross-legged. I, I, I can't like sit in one way. Like I have to keep moving. So Totally get it. Totally get it. There's one last subject on the uh, on the subject of exercise that I wanted to discuss with you real quick because it's a hot topic right now. So I was very curious if you guys have implemented it, if you see benefit to it, or if it's just maybe not something that you've done just yet, or maybe something you not don't want to do. Uh, but the hot topic and exercise that I'm referring to is incorporating uh, zone two training. So zone two are like low heart rate training for endurance and more specifically to longevity. Uh, is that something you guys have focused much on or is it something that like you feel like isn't maybe as much of a benefit because you're doing other things for longevity kind of encapsulate what zone two would be hitting at anyway. I wouldn't say I put a huge emphasis on it, but I have a lot of clients doing it just because a lot of people come in and they're like, oh, I followed Peter Atia, yeah, which is like pretty common to hear yeah. these days. Um, and yeah. I've seen pretty powerful shifts in biomarkers and especially like CGM data with the incorporation of zone two. And I trust the research. I think it's pretty powerful with you know, the movement towards longevity. I think it's hard for me to implement on a regular schedule just because I don't like cardio. Dancing and animal flow, I, I guess, could be considered zone two training. Yeah, I think the research is amazing on that. And I think the only thing I would categorize for me as, as zone two would be my virtual reality workouts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> VR workouts. Do you like put on like an Oculus when you do it? Or Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried that? The Oculus oh. Supernatural workout? No. It's usually about no, 20 how does minutes. That, how does that work? So in the workout, you're striking at different targets, but with throughout it, you don't even realize you're doing squats and lunges and tricep extensions. That's interesting. I need to give it, I need to give stuff like that a go because I love engaging an activity that serves the purpose of exercise because it is exercise, but it tricks your brain into not even realizing that you're putting forth and exerting effort. So like, for instance, like I see that for me a lot of times with like sports. So like I, I love playing sports and like tennis is my go-to sport. Like tennis is hit. Like it's high intensity interval training. Like if I look at my Garmin, like after I'm done with playing tennis, it looks like I was doing doing hit. Uh, but I never notice it. It's not that painful because I'm engaging in something that while I'm exerting a lot of activity or I'm exerting a lot of effort and energy, just kind of a sport and a game and it's fun to me. So I think that that's like one of the hacks, right? So like when we talk about hacks is like finding mechanisms and ways to like engage in healthy movement and exercise and increasing cardiorespiratory fitness without like having to feel as much pain and the cognitive pain, I would say, as like having to focus on and saying like, I am just doing a run right now, or I'm just doing a bike ride or a row. Like, I love things like that. So yeah, the VR workouts, yeah. I haven't gotten much and studied much and looked much into VR, but yeah, I think I probably should now. It's a lot of fun. And my aura ring is always like, were you jogging for 20 minutes? I'm like, no, just doing my VR workout, <laughs> just dancing in the living room. And I will say- there's a lot of blue light for sure, which I'm sure biohackers are like, why would you put that on your head? I never do it after <laughs> 3 or 4 p.m. 
Um, and I only do it for 20 yeah, minutes, yeah. so it's not too stimulating. But our mutual friend Molly McLaughlin has recommended it for clients that need that blue light stimulation first thing in the morning. It, that could be a yeah. biohack right there. Interesting. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, she's the one that got me into it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It's it's recognizing too that sometimes you're going to take a little bit of a hit like in certain areas, but you're gaining maximal benefit in other areas. So it's like a little bit of blue light that can be very stimulating and helpful in the morning. Um, could be detrimental in the afternoon for people, but could be very beneficial in the morning. But also too, like if you're worrying about kind of the effects that it might have on, let's say, eye or retinal health, it's like, is it then though offset with the tremendous amount of benefit that you're getting from a cardiorespiratory standpoint? And that's where I'm like, mm -hmm. we don't need to split hairs too much. Like there's gotta yeah. be a little bit yeah. of give and take here. So I'm willing to take a little bit of hit every once in a while, just like I'm willing to take a little bit of a hit every once in a while and eat something that I might not eat every single day. Maybe it's, you know, my kid's birthday party and I want a freaking bowl of ice cream because it looks fun and it's <laughs> social, or I want to drink, you know, this fun alcoholic drink because it's fun and it's social. Would I do it every day or even every week? Probably not. But every once in a while, I'm willing to take the hit to live my life a little bit uh, to its fullest. <laughs> so totally. totally. Yeah, totally me too. Absolutely. Let's move on to the next subject, which is like it's our mutual friend. Molly's going to love this talk uh, is sleep. And so let's talk about the role and importance of sleep for you all, maybe sleep preparation, what you do in regards to like how you prep, when you prep, just sleep in general. Um, how much of a priority is it for you? And then how do you sleep well or maybe not so well? Hopefully you're both sleeping pretty well. <laughs> uh, we're both slightly different sleepers. Like I'm a dolphin chronotype, which I don't think rules my world, but I'm naturally like a pretty light sleeper. Renee and I are both pretty sensitive to light and stimulation at nighttime. So we're both really strict about the blue light blockers, getting off devices, dimming the lights, which I find is actually really difficult. I'm in my parents' house right now and they're not sensitive. So they have the lights up full, like the dimmer is not even touched. So I'll like creep through the room. I'm like, can you please turn on the lights? <laughs> so ideally, you know, dimming the lights at night, just trying to do relaxing things. I have an amp coil. Are you familiar with that device? I am. Yes. But, but explain. Yeah. So the AMP coil is a, a PEMF device with Tesla coil technology. And it's essentially sound frequency to bring the body back into its resonant frequency so we can encourage natural healing in the body. And there's all types of journeys mm -hmm. uh, for organ support, for detox, for nervous system regulation. I love the nervous system down regulation at nighttime, like a relax all before bed. If I happen to have been on my yeah. computer too late or maybe watch a dramatic Netflix show, which, you know, talk about taking the hit. Sometimes I really want to enjoy that. So got to got to get in your Ozark. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then just sleep environment. Like I'm really, really picky about temperature. I have to sleep in an icebox. And if I don't, then I know my sleep is going to take a hit. And so if I'm traveling, sometimes there's some tension with whoever I'm visiting. I'm like, fighting for the thermostat to go down. But temperature seems to be the biggest <laughs> right. variable. Darkness would be second on that list. But just making sure I'm not... Yeah, What's the ambient room temperature that you like to set it at? 62 or 3. Whoa, that's really cold. I like it like it like 67. And then most people are like 67's chilly for me. And then I also you mm. know, use like an Uller chili pad. But uh, but yeah, 62? Like, woo. Icebox. Yeah, that's an icebox. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Were you okay at my house this week at Are you 65? The same way? Well, I also find like temp depending on 
depending on the home or the environment, like 65 could feel very differently in different places. Yeah. I, well, I would say sleep is my number one biohack. I prioritize that over exercise and nutrition and everything else. I think coming from before I got really sick, I didn't prioritize sleep. I was like the four or five hour club. I would push through the day and surprise, surprise, I got really sick and had chronic fatigue syndrome after all of that. So it went from four to five hours to then sleeping 12 to 13 hours a night. I mean, my body forced me to make up Mm -hmm. for lost time. So over the over the years, I'm like a nine-hour kind of girl. I, that's just my sweet spot. I need a little bit more sleep, I think, maybe than the yeah. average person. But um, like Lauren said, super sensitive to light at night. I'm I got my blue blockers on after sunset. Thermostat down to sixty-five, sixty-six. I sleep with an eye mask every night now. I don't know. It's like not only is it dark, but it's almost like a safety. Thing. I sleep like a baby with the eye mask on. Yeah, I'm a good sleeper. Yeah. I'm more of like yeah, a bear. I'm a, I'm a bear chronotype. So I'm like down and I'm good for the night until my maybe alarm or the sun comes up. But no, no, it makes sense. I am one of those individuals too. I'm very sensitive to light and I have to wear a mask at night. I don't, I shouldn't say I have to. That means I'm, sounds I'm like I'm reliant, but there are, there are three things that are a part of, uh, what need to be on my body when I sleep. One would be an eye mask. And I use one from a company called Manta, which I absolutely love. Like, I think that's such a great eye mask. And then I have to have, I like to put a nasal strip on to open up my nasal pathways when I sleep. And then I put mouth tape on. So open up the nose, mouth tape to close the mouth. And that's like my recipe. And I feel so at home. Like when I have that, I was curious, do either of you use mouth tape or have you used it in the past? Do you see any benefit for you? Like an improving sleep? I've played with it. I can't say that I have seen a change, even like my HRV, my respiratory rate, deep sleep, REM sleep. I don't see a change. I'm sure it's helpful, but I haven't seen a change either. And I think we're both a little defiant just because we have a message about the mouth taping. Like our dad's a biological dentist. He treats sleep app. And we see a lot of people are just going straight to the mouth taping without actually addressing their respiratory system functioning. Mm. And so you could be closing off a hole, which is your only way to get oxygen while you're sleeping. So Mm. I think it can benefit a lot of people. But I think because of what we've learned from our dad, we're like, maybe not everyone should be mouth taping. So just like cautionary tale, like check it out for yourself. And maybe experiment during the day or before you go to bed before you just like shut it up and go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be really dangerous. I mean, snoring is a survival mechanism. And clenching your jaw is a survival mechanism. If you're not getting enough air, your body's going to clench your jaw. It's trying to expand the muscles in your neck so you can get oxygen. So for some people, they just close that off. So you definitely want to rule that out first. Yeah, it's it's again one of those things that people hear about. Oh, there's efficacy or need or like uh, you know so and so is mouth taping, therefore I need to do it. And you could potentially be doing more harm than you are good. Um, and so there's some. I mean, obstructive sleep apnea is so highly prevalent, and there are so many individuals that are struggling with it and don't even realize it. Um, and so a lot more sleep studies need to be had for people so that they can find and diagnose and then figure out more root cause type approaches to open mm-hmm. to to effectively utilizing 
their respiratory system instead of just throwing a, well, I guess you could say it's almost kind of like a literal bandaid on, which is, you know, the, the mouth tape yeah. over the mouth. Uh, it's, 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 it's something that, yeah, needs to be discussed. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I don't want people just to fall into this pattern of saying, well, I heard Jay talk about it. Or I heard Lauren or Renee talk about, you know, whatever they do and therefore I must do it. It still comes back to not every single approach works for everybody or should be implemented by everybody. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. The one last thing I wanted to ask you about that I was really curious about, you've kind of already said it without saying it, but I want to unpack it a little bit is how are you tracking sleep and what are you specifically looking for when you track sleep? Um, I'm using the aura ring and the bio strap right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typical biohacker, more than one tracker at a time. I like to see both <laughs> yep, and how, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I right. like to see I how different or similar they are. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm always looking at sleep efficiency, you know, um, how many times I'm waking up, you know, I do like yes. to look at time spent in deep sleep. I'm usually a good deep sleeper, the REM sleep. That I see vary based off of did I have caffeine or alcohol? Did I have blue light at night? I definitely see an impact on REM sleep, which we know is not super accurate on the aura ring. And BioStrap won't even mm-hmm. compute the REM sleep because they say it's not possible to do it on your wrist. Um, right. But I think still seeing like the variation, you can still learn a lot with the trends of that. Um, I also mm. like to play around with different sleep supplements. You know, I've seen Kian Sleep or CBD oil increase my deep sleep. I don't take it every night. And as our friend Molly would say, say uh, the desert island strategy. She says, mm-hmm. if you need that to sleep, that's a problem. She says, if you're on a de- deserted island, yes. could you sleep without your key on sleep? I'm like, I can. But when I add it, I get a little more deep sleep. You know, it's just yeah. fun to I don't want yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I try not to that's get addicted sure. to like doing anything every single night and just remembering I know how to sleep naturally. Um, Mm -hmm. I think what else? Um, I also really like doing the brain tap during the day. I find that Mm. I still sleep really well, even when I do that during the day. And I think that's improving my HRV. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, Can you unpack a little bit of what brain tap is for those who don't know what brain tap is? Oh yeah. Yeah. So brain tap, it's a device that's using light and sound um, technology or therapy. So you're getting light and sound in your ears and you're getting light over your eyes. This was developed by Dr. Patrick Porter, who's just fabulous. Everyone should follow him. Um, but yeah, it's using brain entrainment. And so we do see that we can change the brain waves. So you can do different, you know, like a Delta one or a beta theta, depending on what you want to do. So like I'll do Delta before bed, maybe I'll do theta before I need to get some work done. Um, and they've done a lot of tracking with, with looking at brainwaves during that. So that's one of my favorite biohacks. That's cool. Yeah. How about you, Lauren? Are you, are, what mechanisms are you tracking? Are you, you have like 10 sensors like Renee has on each night and, uh, biohacking your way to good sleep? <laughs> yeah, I have the aura ring and the bio strap right now. And I really am trying to get off at least one and ideally at some point, maybe off of all. I'm really just trying to dial in the you metrics like, that are you sound like an addict who's like trying to like titrate myself like, oh, man, I got like, oh, one cut, day I can cut, quit cut my alcohol use here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cut back my wearable use. <laughs> I, like I probably it I like will it. always dip in like the CGM. I think it'll be good to dip back in and just see like what has changed over the years. But, you know, I don't want to be dependent on these devices to tell me how I'm sure. feeling. 
So I'm just trying to really hone in on the metrics that maybe are still fluctuating. And for me, heart rate changes a lot and sleep efficiency, mostly uh, wake ups, wakefulness throughout the night. Super dependent on stress and what I've done before bed. I am really sensitive to alcohol. That will raise my heart rate. And it's so hard for me to get that back down. Um, Or just if I was on my computer too late. So those are kind of the ones that still are seeing some variability. And I'm really trying to hack those. So most of my attention is on those. The rest, like my deep sleep's pretty good. I have like time in bed versus um, time actually asleep is pretty good other than, you know, those wake ups if I'm stressed and emotional stress seems to be the biggest variable, which is just so wild to me. I'm like, Oh, it all comes back to stress. Mm. Like we got to look at this. We got to hack it. No, indeed. Well, I mean, that's the most beautiful segue that I could possibly ask for into the next component, which will make our last. I know we're kind of running up here on the hour here, which is like, what are you doing for stress? I mean, so, you know, there's so many things that are thrown around, you know, within our uh, our field of health optimization and biohacking, you know, there's things like meditation and guided imagery, breath work, biofeedback, you know, utilizing cold and heat exposure as mechanisms of helping reduce stress and mental wellness. What are you both doing for, for that aspect right now? The number one thing, oddly enough, is getting out in the sun in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously with stress, we're looking at cortisol. So I... I had super high cortisol for many years, and then I actually went the reverse. I had like flatline cortisol when I was really sick. So mm-hmm. starting that yep. natural cortisol curve for the day is really important to me. One of the main reasons, to be honest, why I moved to Las Vegas, because in Maryland, all those rainy, cloudy days, I just couldn't get that sunshine in the morning, and I couldn't get that natural cortisol yeah. rise. So, and then right. Lauren loves my rooftop here in Vegas. We'll go up in the morning get my natural sun, amazing way to start my day. So increasing the cortisol naturally in the morning. And then obviously your cortisol is coming down throughout the day. I love doing the brain tap again. Breath work. I'm really into our our friend Robbie Bent created the Othership app for breath work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that because it has cool music. It's guiding you to different practices. You know, maybe inhale for four, hold for seven, out for eight. Or maybe it's three breaths mm-hmm. per minute, which is which is hard for me. So I like the different strategies, really but I slow. like the yeah, that's really slow. Um, but I like the music, and I have to do something mm-hmm. like that, either brain tap or breath work, at least once a day. I tend yeah. to be more mm-hmm. Type A personality. I'm go go go. I have to find that quiet time in the afternoon, or I'm just kind of dead for the day. <laughs> so it's very important for me. For me, it's a constant journey slash battle. (laughs) I I wouldn't give myself like Mm -hmm. high points on this one. I'm certainly my father's daughter and I have been conditioned to to work a lot, work nonstop. And I enjoy the work. So anytime someone has told me, we'll just work less, I'm like, but I like working. But I, I do think there is like a call for being more and doing less. But that's also like a societal Mm. construct. We're living in a very masculine, dominant world that is very organized, forward motion, technology. And so I've been really trying to call in more of a feminine quality and just being more in flow, more in creativity, which is hard for me. I think at some point in my life, even though I've been a performer my whole life, there was a a creative aspect that was shut down a little bit. And so I've been working really Mm. hard to just schedule like, time just to be like, I don't need to check off a list. And you know, I'm not good. I'm not great at it, but I'm trying. 
plant medicine has come into my life in the last couple of years and I've done a coaching certification. So I'm starting to integrate that into my health coaching. But I think that's an amazing way to quiet the default mode network that kind of checks us out and just puts us on autopilot. So being mm-hmm. able to be present with thoughts and emotions and we raise neuroplasticity with this release of BDNF. And I think that allows just space for processing and maybe like taking a a slightly different path because sometimes in stress, we're just, you know, hitting our head against the same wall over and over again. We just need to like reroute a little bit. So that's opened up some space. And of course, with that comes some meditation, breath work. I too love the Othership app. So that's part of my morning stack standing in the sunshine. There's one track in particular that that gets you yawning, you start breathing and then you start yawning, which kicks up the dopamine and then you shake, which is like what animals naturally do to shake off stress. Why are humans not shaking more, which I love. So I think my morning practice is like a good, a good reset for the top of the day. But I don't know. I'm always trying to optimize there. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like, and this is again, purely anecdotal and just my own subjective experience, but I think that sleep is my foundation for stress, but then everything Mm. is dictated on how I start my habits and my routine in the morning. And I think that I have noticed when I miss that component, then it sets me up for less of an adaptation to stress throughout the day. And I find myself being a little bit more emotionally volatile and just upset at things that maybe I didn't. But if I get in kind of like my morning routine, which I know it sounds almost like a little bit of a fad thing because like morning routine has become such a part of just like health and wellness influencers. Like they are asked about it all the time, but it's for a reason. I think, I think that it's because it holds a lot of inherent value and it really sets the stage for the day. And it's not to say, because I don't want people to think that they can have like this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not to say that if I don't do my full morning routine, that the rest of my day is going to be crap, but there is something to be said about engaging in those habit behaviors that really do help us to sink into that routine and then carry it throughout the day. Because I think that we are all creatures of habit. We like structure and we like routine to a certain extent and for some people more so than others, but a level of scheduling and a level of routine, uh, when it becomes a part of our day and it does become habit or routine, it's something that we can always fall back on. And I like that component. So uh, yeah, again, mm-hmm. I could drone on and on about morning routines forever. But you know, I just think it's a really valuable component. Yeah, totally. I mean, like our brainwaves are so vulnerable coming out of that sleep dream state. And if you just jump, you know, jump right into emails and tasks, then your brain is just on hypervigilance for the rest of the day. So I totally agree with you. Without a doubt. And And we're like running out out of time. Oh, Oh, yeah, go for it. I I have one more thing to my morning routine is I, I put Disney music up on my TV. Oh, she sure does. <laughs> nice. What is it? Is it Moana? Is it uh, Toy Story? What is it? It's different Anything? every day. Maybe like some Disney Castle fireworks show or something. Just to have that music because it just puts me in a really good mood. <laughs> Obviously, I love Disney. But oh, I think yeah, well, I love you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, there's great research just on music in general. A lot of it is finding kind of the tune for your life. And for you, Renee, it's Disney. Like own it, love it. Like if it's the thing that brings you joy and happiness and reduces your stress response, that's awesome. From someone else, it might be Slipknot and Marilyn Manson. I don't know. It's like <laughs> there's it's like everybody like has their own thing. And I'm like, hey, listen, to each their own. If it's gonna help you perform and be your best person, whatever music it is, 
you know, rock on or, you know, Disney. Mm-hmm. It up. So, yeah. <laughs> or for it. my neighbor, it. it is a Indeed. bad boys for life. Apparently he's had that on repeat all week. Bad so. boys. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, man. Hopefully they're not like on a bender and they're just like bad boys for life. You know, just not sitting sure there what's happening over down, there. You know, Budweiser's. Yeah, we're a little yeah, concerned for him. But. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Uh, well, I, we there's so many topic areas that we didn't even get to cover. Um, and I know we're you're running up on time. Like, well, this is like going to be one of many times. I know we've even, and I'm going to throw this out there to the Hanu audience as a teaser, is I know we've talked about this idea of doing a round table with our mutual friend Molly and all three of yeah. us. And so I'm really excited about that. I think we it would make for some amazing discussion on all of our platforms. But before we do go, I'd love for you guys to go ahead and plug your podcast, which is amazing. So tell everybody kind of what your podcast is. And then also too, like how can people find out more about you, um, track and follow you in, in whatever way. So go ahead, plug away shamelessly. Yeah. So the Biohacker Babes podcast, we release a new episode every Monday morning. We rotate. We have fabulous guests like Dr. J. We kind of cover the spectrum in biohacking, nutrition, fitness, uh, lifestyle, breath work, you know, hot topics and hormones, whatever's going on. And then every third episode is just the two of us. So you get a little bit of what we do with our clients and things we're interested in at the time. But every Monday, our website is thebiohackerbabes.com. We're on Instagram, biohacker underscore babes. <sighs> what else? Personal Instagram is Lauren underscore Sambatero. And mine is just Renee Bells, B-E-L-Z. Yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, I've, I learned so much from you all. You know, it's funny because I used to not be, I'm still not like on social media a lot, but when I do get on, like there are just a select few people that I follow and I love seeing the things that you all post. Like I, I, I learn a lot and it's just very educational. So I would encourage if you're not already and you're a Hanu listener, like if you like what we produce here at Hanu and what we do, you're going to love what Lauren and Renee do on all their platforms. So check them out, follow them, show them some love and, uh, uh, to the both of you. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Like it's been a blast of com- conversing on here. I look forward to many more of these in the future. Yes. Thank you so much. So much fun to be with you. Yeah. We love what you're doing. Your podcast is amazing and can't wait for the device to come out. We just were so excited. Coming oh, yeah. very, very soon. Yes. yes. Leave you with bated breath. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. Thank you.